Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Good to see you, David. Good to be here. Good to see you, Brian. Hey, how are y'all doing? Hey, Jim. Jim is uh, is working on a uh, redefinition of sin, but... Come out with a different way of thinking about orientation to sin. I did read that, yeah. It's like fishing and you're dealing with this string that gets all spiraled up and just the warp of the string works against itself, just twists the fabric of life so that it's just... Just in a big knot. I'm trying to reimagine orientation towards sin. Yeah, I like I like what you're doing with it. I, I like the thought. In your description, you're capturing several things, and one is the way we normally define sin is over and against the law. Sin is a transgression of the law, and that it's a doing of something. But actually, Paul usually now in the beginning of Romans, he does use the plural, and we talked about that. But usually he uses the singular, so that sin, it's a state that he's describing, and not so much tied to action. And this is why I have used the word orientation. I don't know if anybody else talks that way, but to me that captures the picture. He'll he'll use the sinful mind that there is something wrong with their thinking. (laughs) But it's not just our thinking. It is the way in which we would constitute desire. And again, here, I think we could go wrong and picture this, you know, simply in sexual terms or some other way like Augustine did, you know, in in the beginning of chapter 7. In the way that Giorgio Agamben deals with that passage, and that is, there is no commandment, thou shalt not covet. The commandment actually reads, thou shalt not covet, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house. In other words, there are objects of desire. There are things that you're not supposed to covet. But to say, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not desire? His point is the command, and this seems to be what Paul is saying, whether Paul heard, you know, or whoever this is, whether it's Adam, what may be happening is, they didn't hear the command in the way that was it was given, but in their reception of it, they read it as thou shalt not desire. And this then gives rise to desire. I, I think I said this to you the other night. It's sort of like saying thou shalt not think of pink elephants. In the command is the impetus to transgress, to, to, to do the thing. And Agamben's point is, or and Zizek, uh, Zizek is picking up a gomben. Thou shalt not desire is an impossibility. By its very nature, it gives rise to sin. And of course, if Paul is talking about Genesis 3, the, or the original command, uh, which I think he is, in other words, I think he's describing this orientation to the law. And the problem, even in the way he records it, is in the way he receives it. Now, this may be going to more extremes than the text allows for, but I think not. That that Paul is describing we're boxed in 
by the law. Yeah, are you looking specifically at a specific uh, verse like Romans 7 something or? Yeah, 7 7. I did not know sin except through the law. You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died in the law that is for life, this I found to be death. What he goes on to describe, covetousness or desire gripped him through the law. It sprang to life through the commandment. I think we all know the experience that's being described. You know, tell your kids, don't eat those cookies in the cookie jar and don't eat them at 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. And all of that will unfold accordingly. Good to see you, Matt. Good evening. Good. How's everything? Doing well. Doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. Jim is giving us a redefinition of sin. You know how to add. Like That's all you know. Oh, you're adding all these sixes and fours. You can just multiply and come up with the same answer. And you've never heard of multiplication. And that's just like a new system breaking in on your limited arrangement. The, the grammar we're, we're using were captured by a limitation, just like someone was captured by just adding and adding and adding. Is that grammar just have like a hidden suffix or a hidden prefix like Greek? Is sin like a hidden grammar as Christ frees us from, or Christ the the actual Christ becomes that suffix or that prefix, and then oh, the whole grammar changes up. I like the illustration because the way that I pictured it is that we can talk about the deep grammar as being the law, and it doesn't matter what you do with it. That's going to be the language. That's going to be the foundation that you're working in. That is the matrix. And you really can't escape that matrix. And of course, this is, I think, the significance of the logos. The Greeks had the idea that the logos, small l, human language, was in and of itself adequate to arrive at the forms or at absolute truth. And I think the significance of Christ as the logos Christ as the I am that I am, Christ as the tetragrammaton, is that indeed our deep grammar. The mistake that could be made here is we're really not talking about language per se, but we're talking about an orientation within the language, as you described it, in connection to two forms of mathematics, you know, that you can be working in addition and somebody teaches you multiplication or if you think about it in terms of euclidean geometry as long as scientists were using euclidean geometry they could only conceive of the world i think the best that you could do was a newtonian system of cause and effect because that's just the nature of euclidean geometry and so Einstein, you know, before Einstein could come up with the theory of relativity, he, he has to rely upon an alternative geometry, an alternative mathematical understanding. And I, yeah, so I think that's a parallel to, to what we're describing, that in one thing, we, uh, that law and sin are a deep grammar that are attached, so too grace 
and freedom or grace and release from bondage are are attached. I think in your talk on chapter six, you mentioned a zero-sum game. Anything that's part of that oriented to lack of, not enough, you have something I need, I can't give up, I can't lose, all of that is a system, part of a reality that's capturing and death-oriented. I think that's it. The, literally, a mathematics that I got that from Anselm of Canterbury. He literally proposes a zero-sum game as the parameters for understanding salvation. Most people don't pay much attention to his notion that the number of the saved is the same as the number of angels that have fallen. Wow. But he needs to do that because then it doesn't matter what the number is, but the point is that it's a finite number creating that zero-sum game in which the cross becomes a means of payment of so much that is paid. And then he, you know, he kind of creates a problem for himself. He says, well, what is the worst possible sin? You know, what sin would need the, the most payment for? Well, crucifying Christ. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Then they've used up, you know, all of the credit on the expense. But he says, yes, but those who crucified Christ did it in ignorance. And so there is a sum that is still available, you know, a, a certain amount that can be spent on other souls to be saved. He literally is making it a monetary exchange. He's making it a mathematical exchange. He's doing an audit. Yeah, it's a, he's, a, he's a lawyer. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, Jim, you're... Your uh, question is good. And in the same way Christ redefines law, he does the same thing to sin, the whole concept of sin. My guess, when it's relational, when there's a, a set of uh, objectives to meet according to the law, and that's the world that you live in, sin is missing the mark. And that's one way to define I mean, That's etymologically, I think, what it means. But when... It's about being in Christ and being in a relationship. It's about being a son versus a slave. You know, to miss the mark is just to not be abiding in that relationship. It's to sort of withdraw from it. It's yeah. one thing. It's just, one, I mean, sin is one thing. It's just not abiding in Christ, not, well, not walking by the Spirit. It, it came to me as I've been viewing Christianity as an ideology more than relationship and an ongoing process. The assumptions that are ever with us that we don't see uh, because we're too close. Had a, I've had a sense of freedom or a sense of uh, liberty that I haven't realized in quite a while. Great, wonderful. Uh, I did have the conversation with John Depew yesterday, and I think that's what comes out in justification theory. First of all, it's a, it is, I think, the theory part of it in that it is still grounded in the law, you know, so that we can do what Anselm did. We can create these formulas. We can kind of create a system that is propositional, that is doctrinal, and that if we understand the propositions, 
really that's adequate. But once we shift away from that, I'm not sure what the hard shift here is. The thing I said in the as I was talking to him, and then I took it back, is there is a sense that justification theory, like Calvinism, but like any kind of system that we might create, it does reduce to a logical system that is easily graspable in a set of propositions. And therefore, and here I'll I'll take this back, but what I said was it may function in a simpler fashion. Whereas when we're to change up from that, I think is a huge difficulty. I don't think it's because Christianity is actually more difficult as we have it in the New Testament. I think it's just more all-inclusive in that it is a participatory, relational entry into an alternative understanding, first of all, of who God is. Through justification theory, you can kind of define God through the law. And of course, the irony is that I I, I may be more extreme than, than John was willing to be, that what happens in justification theory, you just repeat the false teaching that Paul is trying to get rid of. And that is that the false teaching is you define God through the law. I know that we can all escape these things, but inasmuch as Protestantism or any system is tied up with justification theory, haven't we gone back to doing the very thing that Paul is trying to extract the false teacher from doing? So, there is that shift in understanding God. But of course, that shift you can't do apart from understanding who Christ is. And this may be the key, that we know who God is through Christ. Just a simple concept. It is Christocentric. For Protestants, this was brought home by Karl Barth, but of course, it's not just Barthian. Matt, from your perspective, in an Eastern Orthodox understanding, Christocentrism, as you have it in Origen, as you have it in Maximus, that is just the way you do theology. So Karl Barth isn't making this up. Karl Barth is rediscovering, I think, something that was lost in the Western understanding, certainly in justification theory. Yeah, it's almost like once you make that departure you, from Jesus, you get all sorts of theological problems. And all we're saying is, Jesus is who God is. Yep. I mean, in that New Testament Christianity, you know, obviously God the Father is a person, but we know who that person is only through the Son. Yeah, through the Spirit. In other words, it's always, we talked about this the last time you and I talked for as innocuous as Brian Zahn's sinners in the hands of a loving God was, it sure got a lot of people like me into trouble with people of a different understanding, because basically there, Brian's just arguing that Jesus is the face of God. There is no God behind the God. There's no God behind the curtain. What you see is what you get, you know, in Christ is you get the Father through the Spirit, you know, but I, I do think that what you were just saying there earlier about uh, and that, and to me, that was the big thing that we got out of your classes, you know, back in the day was uh, a very strict sort of Christocentric approach that really should be. And this is what you've been teaching for many years, that that 
absolutely has to inform all of Christian dogma, East or West, doesn't matter what it is, um, theology proper, eschatology, ethics, politics, economics, all of it has to continually have its basis in the revelation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, or otherwise we're probably going to almost by default be doing something like the law. And that's the problem, you know, the simple move that we're making. I don't know whether you have to do this exegetically in the way that Douglas Campbell has done it with 118 to 32, but that then removes, you understand it's in that passage that we get the notion of available light. And available light, those of you who went through a seminary education, it might have just been tacked on, you know, oh, we'll kind of tack this on somewhere. But actually, it's a kind of necessity, because you need for everyone to come to the realization, first of all, of who God is, and you understand his omniscience, His, his uh, I'm not talking about you, David, his omnipotence, <laughs> his justice, just by virtue of being a human being. In other words, you can extract all those things from nature. As far as I know, Romans 1, you know, that passage in one eighteen to 32, I, I suppose you could, you know, it's there in the Psalms that we see the fingerprints of God in the heavens, but those Psalms are written by Jews who have already received the revelation. And I'm not saying you can't go a long way like the Greeks did toward an understanding of a God, but the God that you arrive at, and David, this was the problem that I had with the way that, I don't know if how Jack Cottrell might have structured his class, but he structured it for us in the, in the classical fashion. Day one, you know, for, or the first several days, we got to prove God, right? How do we know that God exists? Well, we know God exists through the apologetical arguments. The ontological argument is key. The cosmological argument, you know, that we can argue to God from the cosmos, go through all each of the apologetical arguments. And then you've established who God is and what his nature is. Week two, or step two, now we turn to the Bible. Well, wait a minute. And this, of course, is Karl Barth's objection that the God of the philosophers, it's not just Karl Barth, actually, a lot of, a lot of this is actually Soren Kierkegaard, a lot of people saw this. Martin the Luther, God, I mean, Martin Luther, the, he did, your yeah. theology is never going to give us the crucified God. Yeah, even, even Luther is protesting against this kind of what is called scholasticism, that is a fusion of uh, a Greek or a philosophical understanding. What those sorts of arguments give you is something on the order of the Aristotelian unmoved mover. And thus you get, actually, I was having a conversation with one of my former students and, uh, just today. Did, do you all remember the theological movement started by Clark Pinnock, the open theology? Yeah. Like process theology or something different? Similar. It was an unfortunate moment in the history of theology as a sort of a Hegelian appropriation, right, Paul? 
Yeah, but it was, you understand, Matt, it's similar to process theology. In the open theology, Pinnock, and actually I didn't know it. Did you know, David, that Jack Cottrell was caught up in this? Um, I did not. That um, <laughs> I think we studied a little bit of him, but I, may, I was too naive back then. I just believed whatever people told me to believe. Well, I was sort of the same way. I I always think this. I thought, man, if I had been a little smarter, you know, I came to all this late. You know, I was I was saying that to John. Here's a guy he's 32, 31, you know. I said to him, man, you know, you've got this insight at such a young age. I struggled for most of my life, you know, <laughs> to, to come to these. Well, I, you know, you go to seminary, you're – I'm. I'm ignorant kid from Texas. You go to seminary, you figure, well, they'll tell me what. I just figured they'd had it all figured out, and they'd just tell me. I didn't know they'd messed it all up. <laughs> <laughs> and so under Jack Cottrell, I decided I got very interested in the subject of time. Mm. And I was trying to write a, a master's thesis on uh, the Augustinian view of time. What I did not know was that he, at that point, had entered into conversation with Clark Pinnock, and there's a whole group of these people. And you've got to understand the problem. Okay, you've got this notion of a philosophical understanding of God, and basically what God looks like is the unmoved mover. So when you talk about God's immutability, God's unchangingness, uh, the idea that the Father cannot suffer, that God begins to look incapable of love and mm. incapable of responding to the human condition. That, I think, is very similar to what is taking place. And most of these guys, you know, I don't I don't mean it as a critique. They, I, I think we're all struggling, you know, and most of them were not highly sophisticated to be able to grasp the history of theology, especially the moment of nominalism, which in, inundated both you know Roman Catholicism and in which Protestantism arose. And of course, that is the problem in a nominalist understanding. You really can't approach this immutable, unchanging God. This is why when I was in Japan, Given this problem, you know, given this is the problem, what is the solution? Well, I began reading Jürgen Moltmann, and Moltmann is just an out-and-out -out heretic, but a, a lovely heretic, because he addresses this problem wrongly, but he at least addresses the problem straight on, and he says, yes, God is the God of Hegel. Open theology is actually not any different. But that's basically what they're saying, that God exists along a timeline. And so God is subject to time. I would not have known this about Jack Cottrell if I hadn't spent, I think, literally hours. Because I was just trying to get my thesis written. And step one is I wanted, okay, what's the orthodox understanding? God created time. Yeah, I never got beyond step one. Because he would say, no, time is an uncreated category. Mm. 
And I said, well, wait a minute, that's a Newtonian understanding of time. And I don't think he knew what I meant. It's not like I was in any way very smart, but at least I knew that, that what had taken place in an Einsteinian, in the Einsteinian scientific revolution is that time and space are joined together and that time is a created thing. In other words, it, it is just an, uh, on the order, it is a time-space continuum. So open theology proposed the idea that God has always existed along a timeline, and this was their cure for the God of the philosophers. In other words, they wanted to get rid of that scholastic God, but the only way they knew to do it was in in this manner to, in some way, make God less than God, uh, unfortunately. They do very simple things in the book. You know, when you pray, how can God answer your prayer? Well, he cannot answer your prayer if he is immutable, unchangeable. He can't even hear your prayer. But if God exists along a timeline, it's true he can't tell the future. He could predict the future, but he can't. He doesn't know it absolutely. So they limit the knowledge of God, because if God is omniscient in the classical sense, that means that everything is determined. It is predetermined, so that God has determined everything, even though they're not Calvinists. Actually, many of the Kent Pinnock had come out of a Calvinist background. In other words, they created all of these conundrums for themselves. I think the simple solution is what we are saying tonight. Who God is, is known and understood in Christ. Christ is the openness of God. Here is the way. This is the reason we pray in the name of Jesus. Here is the way in which God relates to us. Paul, is it um, what they're trying to do is trying to almost, in a sense, give free will its fullest reign? Um, and, and so, and then ultimately God, even though he doesn't know the particular future, he can know, he knows all 5,007 options that can be taken and he's prepared to work through each one, one of those, um, depending on how we choose to move or. That's it. That's it. Okay. Why are you saying good night, David? Oh, good insight, David. (laughs) I thought David. (laughs) i say my one one thing and if it sounds good i'm out <laughs> good night <laughs> good insight yes yes that that what is that called middle knowledge um it's it's like a blind squirrel finding a nut yeah uh, every <laughs> once in a while he does find one yeah yeah open theology was it was an american movement I, I happened to be in England. I brought it up in England, unfortunately. Anthony Thistleton was teaching the class. Do you all know who Anthony Thistleton was? He was he was he's kind of a famous British theologian, but think of your stock, you know, British character with the umbrella and the top hat. That was Anthony Thistleton. And his, you know, just mockery of open theology gave me a pretty good idea that. This wasn't going to go beyond the borders of the United States, but I think it's all gone now, as far as I know. And not to get us too far into the weeds, Paul, but 
you know, Maltman may have been a quote unquote heretic, although we've talked about how that word's really kind of useless and it's like just a bludgeoning weapon that really is just, you know, not very helpful. Uh, but he, I don't think that he was, he was much more sophisticated than Pinnock and those guys, right? I mean, I just say that to say that actually, I mean, you know, if you go back through and, and we were all reading Maltman back then and we were, he was very, um, you know, we were getting all sorts of different insights from, from Maltman and it was really taking the conversation in very interesting directions because, I mean, that guy was brilliant, you know, but I, I like what, what David said about free will, right? Because that's always the tension, you know, that's the, the antinomy there, right? It's always between God's sovereignty and between free will. How do we work those things out? We can either be a Calvinist or we can be an open theist. Uh, but of course, none of those things have anything to do with Jesus, right? Because Jesus totally redefines what we understand by what sovereignty must mean for God. And, you know, in other words, it's, it's such a basic insight what you were teaching us back then. But it's so important because it's like the Sunday school answer that we make fun of. You know, they're all you know, every answer is Jesus, but it, it really is. Like, it, it, in other words, if you can't, at least for me, if my answer doesn't include a direct reference, first of all, to the person and work of Christ, then at least for me, it's going to fail theologically, ultimately. You know, in other words, we ha it has to make sense with what we know uh, that's been revealed to us in Christ, whether that's about free will, whether that's about sovereignty, whether that's about predestination, whether that's about election, whether that's, you know, you could go all the way through all the different doctrines. And this is, you know, someone like Origen, who, again, from the earliest days of the church was saying okay now that we have that insight that paul gave us back in theology 101 now it's your job to go back through the scriptures and to find the logos in every word of the bible and every bush and every mountain and every valley and every name of the cities and every village that because the logos is incarnate in the word rather than you know how we would normally think of a far off sort of because i was thinking about how you were talking about time which is of course like a super profound insight that you had way back then that of course time must be a creature and space then too is a is a creature because i'm sure that again we've been talking about the antinomies that you can fall between you know that you can be maybe a pantheist right or you can be a deist or uh you know and that christ brings resolution to all these different uh or at least helps us to bring um you know resolution to all these different um antinomies However, is that is that what Hart says? What he says that you can either be Hegelian or a Christian? Sounds like it. Sounds a twist. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he did say that, and uh, a good thing that David Bentley Hart said. Yeah, yeah that's one thing <laughs> because that's what you know. But, but that is that's like actually like a really kind of cool thing because you know we understand that what Hegel's always trying to do is to work out those antinomies in a synthesis that gives birth to another antithesis in other words it's it's the working out of history but the god of Moltmann or whoever is so imminent that for him he's even subject to creation whereas we would say that no the logos that jesus is the creator of the of the cosmos he's not subject to, to anything but you know, anyone but his father you know and Jim, I think that speaks directly to what you were describing. Hegel has just given us a deep grammar. Hegel is correct about everything that's wrong. In other words, I think he got wrong right. He got the human failure correct, only he calls it God, right? And that's really, Matt, what I think 
process theology. I, I see process theology. Process theology, I haven't done much with it, but I think it's basically Hegelian. Uh, process theology would be a more sophisticated version of open theology. Okay, I don't yeah. think any of these guys were highly philosophically sophisticated. Matt, have you done uh, some work there with... No, I mean, I, I'll just a little bit to know I didn't want to read any more. <laughs> um, yeah. um, you know, the only thing I know is that they, they also want to do away with medical, like you know, all, all those metaphysical categories, what God is, they want to do away with. And, and so God, God is, is never, God is, a, is almost like a creature like us who, who is becoming. Right. Yeah. Which is just Hegel. And, and Paul, is that because of, uh, I don't want to get us in the weeds, but is that because of nominalism, right? That in other words, there's always the there's the name for you know the good or or humanity or whatever you want to call it, but that there's nothing you're you're not really describing an actually existing thing like the beautiful, the true, the good, right? Uh, you're just describing. Um, I, do, I guess I'm just wondering why there's always a gap, a gap in between, and I guess that's what's always going to happen when you don't have Christ as the mediator, right? Theologically. That there really is going to be an abyss. There's going to be a gap or a chasm um, that we would just fill with some sort of human philosophy, all too human sort of resolution to the to the chasm in between the this and the that or whatever. Do I have that's nominalism, right? Or what's how would you describe it? The word that you know is precisely the illustration that Hegel used. Mm -hmm. I, I was reading Zizek on this, and my son had come along, and he had begun to talk. But he, you know what his first, one of his first words was, was this, and he'd point at something, and he'd go, this? You know, it was a question. <laughs> well, wait a minute, everything is this. <laughs> the boy is never going to learn another word, because <laughs> that word is infinite. <laughs> You know, you just have to say, yeah, 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 that's that's, that's this too. <laughs> yeah. And that was Hegel's point, that unless there is something over and against, if there's not, if there's a not this, not that, then the this never takes on any definitive meaning. He mean this is a linguistic fact <laughs> that he takes as an ontological reality, that he is doing what I accuse philosophy of always doing but hegel is doing it overtly in and through the something and the nothing which are represented then by life and death that in that dialectic we arrive at spirit at god and that is the origins i think of what is process theology i think it's really what the open theologians were doing Maltman said, oh, point blank, that he's doing Hegel. He's still with us, by the way. Maltman oh. is, he's in his late 90s. He just wrote a book. Actually, Ryan Hemmer, my, one of my former students, who oh, Matt right. knows, is the uh, editor-in-chief at Fortress Press. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, we beat up on, you know, on the one hand, we should kind of beat up on Hegel. On the other hand, he really does do a great job at describing what you've always been describing with identity through difference, uh, that this and that, you know, is a real way that we, uh, you know, left, right, up, down, inside, outside, in, out, whatever, all these different, you know, ways that we talk about being. 
that 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 is that is our only way of knowing uh, outside apart from christ i, I would guess right but it's funny because this and that are almost, they're sort of synonymous, aren't they? I mean, he could have just as easily pointed at something and said that. The problem would be to do what you already said. And that is, is that in Lacan, you know, comes along and sees this, that it's all, the problem is uh, also a linguistic one. I, I can't remember who among you have done, gone through my book on Lacan, but this is what I, this is. So I, I have not, but actually I have like five times. Matt is you're the expert. So Matt Matt can he can interpret me to other people. Which is sometimes well, at least for my wife, you know, I, I act as your interpreter, you know. Um <laughs> and she's one of the smartest people I know, so if not the smartest. So you keep calling yourself stupid, but that's not true at all. <laughs> I would say I'm slow. And by that, I mean that I came to all this very slowly. I worked with what I could, you know. What is being described is is a, a very simple concept. And that is kind of what we're doing tonight, by the way, is the comparison between Romans 6 and Romans 7. Uh, I would I would only ask, where are we headed? Uh, where, what do you, in, in summary, want to do tonight? What do you want to show us? Were you able to read the material about Romans 6 from my book. I was able to read it, <laughs> but it was it was many moons ago, but I did read it uh, many times. And by the way, if you didn't read that part, it's one of the best, I would say, if you're going to read the book, I would say read. If you can't get, you know, do the Lacan and all the Zizek and all that stuff, I would say do the Romans 6, 7, and especially 8 part. I picked it up here for, partly because this is where Campbell stops. In other words, Campbell has given us a kind of brief overview, and I'm going into depth on Romans 6. And what I'm describing in Romans 6, you know, the, first of all, everybody knows Romans 6 begins with a sin formula. Do you know Paul's sin formula? Uh, what shall we say then? Should we persist in sin so that grace may abound? He has about four different ways of saying a very similar thing. I don't think this is just a throwaway phrase for Paul. I take these sin formulas as actually constituting what he sees as the human problem. That is, that there is connected to the law the notion that transgression delivers what is in the law. I'm just using the Genesis 3 to illustrate the point. And the point is, how do you get to the tree of life? How do you get life? You get it in and through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You transgress that you might be like gods. So Paul is going to say, shall we sin that grace may abound? Is the law sin so that I sin in order to establish the law? I think what he's describing is that we do, in fact, interpolate ourselves into the law. In other words, that's part of the goal. We want to get, you know, if you think of the formula as it exists in Genesis 3, the devil is saying, or the, the serpent, or whatever, however you want to read that, whatever that is, what Paul just calls sin, is saying God is tricking you, and he's tricking you through this commandment. And he's saying, well, actually, 
there's life by other means. And the way that Paul will say it in chapter 7, and I think he's just telling us what, again, he's doing the reading on the law, that the law that promised life to me killed me, right? That that thing that seemed to hold out life to me killed me. Well, how did the law kill it? He's thinking of Adam and Eve. He's thinking of the command against covetousness, that in an orientation to the law, where the law is pictured as the thing, the idea is that there is life in the law. That is, doing this thing gives you life, doing the law. That's not the truth. That's the lie. That's the lie that's there that all people, I think this is what Paul is arguing, all people are subject to this deception. Now, I have focused on the deception because I think Paul focuses on the deception. Maybe I don't see that so much in Campbell. I'm not quite sure how he might. I don't think there's any objection to what would be any. But in other words, the, the way that I see this thing functioning or the way that Paul describes it, what is the problem with all people is that we imagine that there is life in the letter, in the symbolic order, uh, and whatever constitutes the symbolic order. There is the sense that that shapes us. Our identity, in another way of saying it, is tied up with the law. This is the definition that I give at the, in the chapter, that part of the issue in chapter 6, that Paul keeps using the word body, you know, he, he talks about that we were baptized into the baptized into his death. We were buried with him in order that just as the anointed was raised from the dead by the Father's glory, so too we might be raised in newness of life. And he goes on to describe this then as rendering to nothing, or in the this is actually the Hegelian word, katargatai suspending the law. In other words, baptism suspends, renders useless, renders no longer oppressive. The real question, it, it is revolving around two things. Paul will use two phrases that I think are, are parallel phrases, body of sin and body of death. And then he's going to talk about the cure to this as the body of Christ. So you're either joined to the body of Christ or you're joined to the body of sin. So step one is maybe we need to define what does the word body mean? What is a body? Can I read it off of your blog entry for today? Oh, good, yeah. <laughs> Greek term for body, soma, is a permeable identity within an environment so that it is the capacity to act and to be acted upon by an environment, which says a lot. Thereby so get, to, get, get the meaning yeah, there? To me, it's what you're saying is, is that the body has to be seen in this way, that it's, it's an it's a all-encompassing system that receives and gives back and participates. It's a participatory center. So, you know, there's two ways of looking at our bodies. But, oh, does my body is kind of my the the shell that keeps me separate from the world. I think that's exactly wrong. So this is the way that we often perceive. Well, I'm in my body. And are you all are familiar enough with Ludwig Wittgenstein? 
to know about, you know, the debate about private language. And really all that, if you wanted to just boil down what Wittgenstein is saying, he's saying there is no private language. Language is learned corporately. We're put into a culture, we're enculturated. I mean, if that's true, all we're saying is that people are people because they are corporately embodied, right? There's no such thing. I mean, I'm, I'm about to explain the individual and how that functions, but step one is you're not a human being apart from the process of enculturation and learning a language. I think that's all included in the Greek term body or in the, the term that Paul is using. And so in the chapter that Matt read, and that the rest of you have the opportunity to read. I go through Boltmann, I go through a lot of people and their discussion of the term body. And basically what I do is say, I kind of merge them all because they're having this debate, you know, what, what can body mean? And some people say, well, body is that permeable identity, that corporate identity, that is primarily defined in relationship to God. I think that's true. That means that we're social creatures. That in my definition here, it is a permeable identity within an environment. The thing that I attach to this, and Boltman does this, and I think Boltman gets criticized for it, he describes the capacity that we can also interrupt that process. But we all know that, right? In other words, that we can in some way disrupt or constitute that environment by self-reflection, that we can objectify ourselves, that me and my body used to be very close, but now we're going our separate ways, so that I no longer am my body, but in the typical human experience, we describe ourselves as having a body. That is, we've already, because I think of human, you want to call it sin, you want to call it development, I don't know what, what it is, but the body in Paul, that's the choice. It can be either this split identity, this antagonistic identity, that of course Zizek and many Christians, who's, who is it, John Piper, John Piper, the Greek, the Calvinist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I quote so, him all the time. You Dave's a, David's a big fan. Uh, no, I'm not a big fan. I, I, I quote all his garbage as, don't say oh. this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. I was just kidding. Um, now, we're, I think we're aware of John Piper. Yeah. So, okay. So, John Piper is the person they use in their book, Beyond Justification as the example of justification theory, right? He's the modern-day saint for that. He And he is a beautiful illustration of this terrible doctrine. He's a champion of Reformed orthodoxy. And, of course, what John pointed out, or what they point out is, yeah, but notice in his description, Christ has very little role. Right. You know, and love it has almost you know love plays a small role when we come to penal substitution, right? It's not love. There's no doesn't. I mean, you said that last class that Calvin just says flat out. He just says, "Well, that's actually an anthropomorphism, and 
you know, it's just a way we sort of describe that God doesn't, doesn't he, in his commentary on First John, doesn't he just say that's an anthropomorphism to say that God? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. The, 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 yeah, no, the truth about God is the law and his retributive justice. The, the point being that the way that we would solve the problem in justification theory in Protestantism is if we don't understand what we're saying right now about the body and the body problem. Who is this body? Oh, that's us. In other words, we're not talking about some partial problem. This thing that Paul is describing that has gone wrong with the body of sin and the body of death, he's not using the body like it's not us. No, this is the definition of the human predicament. And the way that he's going to describe the resolution to the problem in baptism, you know, I do come from a tradition in which baptism is very strongly, believer's baptism is strongly emphasized. I, I think the Christian church is closer to Roman Catholicism. But actually, as I went through this chapter, I, I appealed to many different commentators. And actually, Douglas Moo, who's at Wheaton, had a very, I, I liked his picture of baptism, even though I assume he's a Baptist of some kind. The person that had the most despicable view, surprisingly, I think was James Dunn. Do you all know who James Dunn is? New, new perspective. Think N.T. Wright's right-hand man. I don't know that that's true. Actually, I'm not sure that they ever got along that well. But his picture of baptism. And of course, when we're talking baptism, we're actually talking reality now. That is, I mean, we're this is a, a way of conceiving of reality in regards to the way that language and signs are connected to what they signify. So yes, Matt, your question, is this nominalism? We're talking about a, you know, in sin, that what you would do is gain the signified in and through the sign, that the letter of the law delivers the spirit of the law. But anyway, James Dunn is saying that baptism is a sign, like, and he uses an illustration from Plato, that, you know, it, it is completely removed from the thing that it signified. But you understand if this is this view, not just of baptism, but of reality, leaves us in a completely nominalist universe. Thinking out loud, but it does away with Christianity. It does, yeah. It just, just put a fine touch on it, yes. Because all you have is a circulating system of signs. In other words, what you do with baptism, in a sense, is what you do with reality. I'm not I'm not trying to lay all this weight on baptism. I'm just saying that it's here that Paul is describing the way that we are joined to Christ. What is what does it mean? And what Dunn is going to say, and what many people will say, many Protestants, but maybe Zwinglian type Protestants is that baptism is a likeness. You know, the word is uh, just the word likeness. And the person who comes strongest, I think, he says, well, no, it's not that we're joined to a likeness. It's not that a baptism or the, you know, we're talking about the Christian life is merely an imitation of Christ, but it is a participation in Christ. 
So what we do with Romans 6 is, in fact, I think the key to the resolution of the problem that we've been describing. What we've been describing in the split, you know, that sin, that constitutes sin, is a circulating system of signs in which the subject is structured by language and the the thing that is signified is, in a sense, lost. The wrong answer to this, or the wrong understanding, and what I did in the blog, Brian, I, I compared circumcision and baptism. What is circumcision? Circumcision is a cutting off of the piece of the flesh. And as Protestants, or as Christians, we might imagine, well, that, that gets at it, doesn't it? We need to get rid of the body. We need to get rid of the flesh and maybe shed the body, get rid of the prison house of the soul, as Plato put it, so that the soul can, you know, spring free. And of course, the point is, there is no movement from that problem, that problem or that way of picturing the dialectic and the way that I asked it in the blog. Paul talks about two laws the law of the mind, and the law of the body. I think a typical way of picturing the resolution, in other words, is Paul saying, if only I could use the law of my mind to get the law of my body under control. Is that his point in Romans 7? I think many would say, yes, that's the point. If only, and this is a very Greek understanding also, that if only through using our minds, we could get control of our bodies, then everything would be okay. So it's flesh over and against spirit. It's body over and against soul. It's one law pitted against another law. That is, if we say yes, that Paul means that we need to do this thing with our minds, I think we're misunderstanding that Paul is advocating the dialectic. Paul's not advocating the dialectic. He's saying that's not the resolution, that's the problem. He can do this in chapter 7 because he's actually already solved the problem in chapter 6. That is that in baptism, and the way that he says that, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. How is sin the master over you? As long as you're doing this thing through the law as long as you're involved in this dialectic that he's describing in chapter 7. That is sin. He doesn't mean the law is sin, but he's saying that to imagine you can come to life and God through the law, that is sin. Sin thrives then in the environment of the law. That's what, I mean, that's what 7 is saying, right? That it's apart from the law, there is no sin which is interesting because actually in an Augustinian understanding, how could it be that anybody could be apart from the law? Because a person is born sinful. They're conceived in sin. But Paul actually pictures somebody somewhere, either a child or Adam, prior to the giving of the commandment, I don't know, or himself, that we all go through a stage when the law does not have a grip on us. you know. And, and, of course, that's his argument 
in chapter 4 that faith precedes the law. So where law reigns, there is this deadly antagonism. And I think that's what Rome, that's why Romans 7, you know, is describing this I and not I. And of course, the not I is this alienating force that is in the I. And we know the way that this is resolved because we've already read chapter 6. Or in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified. That is, the Paul's resolution is not to some way win out in this dialectic, but do away with it entirely. It's not a doing away with the law. Do Jews have to stop being Jews to be Christians? Not at all. In fact, I'm not sure that Paul saw his conversion as a conversion. You know, he I, I don't know that he stopped doing what he always did, because we see that he does go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. We see that he has no problem with Jews being circumcised. I don't think he has any problem with most things Jewish. What he has a problem with is to make Gentiles be Jewish in order to be Christian. This is the thing John and Douglas Campbell, they do a great job on, that if we read Romans in the way that we've traditionally read it, in justification theory, it is inherently anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic. It is over and against the Jewish religion. It is a kind of supersessionism. And the thing that cannot be denied is that Christianity has given rise to persecution of the Jews. In the Inquisition, in the Crusades, the Jews have been called the Christ killers. And unfortunately, the reading that we usually give to Romans in 1 you know, to 3, that Judaizing false teacher is read as a Jew, and Paul is read as attacking Judaism. Same thing in Galatians. So in Galatians, it talks about the curse of the law. What is, what, who wants to explain the curse of the law? What, why is the law a curse? Provides the, provides the opportunity for sin is the Roman 7 answer. That's it. But what is, what is sin as we've now defined it? Let's, let's run this down. How does it function? This is the way Jim began our class. It functions as a lie and allows the power of death to enter. I think that gets it. In other words, the curse of the law, why is it a curse? What's cursed about it? As Paul discusses it, both in Romans and Galatians, but also it is there is the f problem of a kind of legalism that is being taken up by the Jewish false teacher, right? That the doing of the law, circumcision, is the means to being judged righteous. And this is Lewis Martin, but Daniel Boyerin. Did I not do this last week? Daniel Boyerin, Lewis Martin. Boyerin is a Jew, and he likes, you know, he does a heavy interpretation of Paul. And he says what Paul is doing there is fairly common in terms of rabbinical treatment of Scripture. And, you know, that it's the, to imagine that the doing of the law is to fulfill the law. And his point is, well, no, in the law, there's more than the doing of the law. And that's Paul's argument in chapter 4, right? That prior to the law, there is faith. What faith? Well, it's actually Christian faith. 
Abraham is a type of Christ. So what is sin? Sin is to imagine there is life in the law. It is a deception in regard to the law. And remember here, the word law is the law. In this, I take it that there is a universal law that is the problem being characterized as existing in all people in Adam, right? So Paul doesn't see this as simply a Jewish problem. He sees it as, as a uh, human problem, but Judaism is not a departure from. Paul, do you think it would be too strong to say that the curse of the law is that because of death, God is displaced by any number of human sort of institutions, uh, human weakness, uh, you know, up to and including the belief that God's love is conditional. In other words, like, uh, isn't the curse of the law that it makes God and his love conditional upon some sort of, you know, the human, the creation, right? That it, the law would deceive, uh, because of death, our orientation to the law, which is good. This is where it gets a little tricky for me because we don't want to say that the apostle is talking out of both sides of his mouth, but because that can't be the case. But on the one hand, he seems to be saying the law is good. The law is spiritual. He says in Romans seven, seven, on the other hand, the law, you know, has become death, right? Uh, that the, you know, like you started the class by saying that I wouldn't have even known what sin was if law had not shown me what it is. Right. And so I guess the curse of the law is that we would miss it displaces God. We would mistake God for something else, which is death, is the way that you've described it. It would it conditions God's love, it predicates God's love upon human obedience or human you know, our, our ability to live out the law. Uh, you know, to keep the law. The, in other words, that God is determined, and the curse of the law is that God is in some way determined by the creation when it's precisely the opposite. That creation is determined by God, predetermined, predestined, call it what you want, in Christ, and that the curse of the law is that quite specifically, Christ is displaced. Jesus gets obscured by the law so the curse of the law is something very specific in as much as that it obscures the person and work of christ who reveals the father who sends the son in the spirit to overcome the problem of death which gives rise to this orientation in the first place in our orientation which would displace god crucify god and imagine that we can have life in and through the various sort of manifestations of the law as you've described them throughout these classes. Bingo. I think that's a, that's a beautiful description. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.